continue to work in all of our hearts. Transform us, Lord, in all of our ways, in all of our hearts, minds, and actions to conform more and more to the true human, your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, work in the hearts of those who are still investigating, uh, investigating Jesus. Please, Lord, engender in them a heart for you. And they come to know your all-surpassing love. Thank you for all the wonderful people who have helped make Ancon happen. Thank you for raising up servants to do that so that we can share together in your word and uncover your truth together. And I ask all this in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, Rowan, I'm going to leave you to uh, give us Ancon Talk 6. And uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so I hope by now you've picked up that our approach this week to the topic of humanity has to be thinking relationally. We try to think relationally about what it means to be a human being. We started with Jesus, the truest human, that's always where we start, who he is and what he's done. And we looked at our trajectory, this glorious, astounding trajectory that God promises and plans for each one of us that we might go through faith in Jesus from death in Adam to glory in Christ. And that then led us to think about our relationship with the one true living God who made us and loved us in Christ, who made and remade us as his image bearers. That relationship that we now have with God in Christ, that's the fundamental and most important truth about you. Then we expanded out our circle of relationships to look at our family our earthly family, which is a reflection of the primary family, the family of God in Christ. And last night we explored a bit of what it means for us to be part of the family of God together. We're a community that worships God alone. We're a loving community that reflects His great love for us. And we're a testifying community that declares who He is and what He's done in Jesus to the rest of the world. So this afternoon, we want to expand our circle of relationships further and try to take in our relationship as human beings with the wider world. So the question today is, as a Christian, how should I engage with the wider world? And the good news is, I'm not changing anything on the outline. We're just sticking with it as it is. How should I, as a Christian, engage with the wider world? Now, we already talked last night a bit about this because we talked about love. And we talked about how God calls us in love to do good to all, not just to our sisters and brothers in Christ. So that is a critical part of our engagement with the wider world. We're called to love, to do good to all. But what about how I think about work or the environment? They're obviously pretty significant aspects to how I engage with the world. What does God expect us to do as his people in the world in these areas? That's why the question of how should I engage with the wider world is such an important question because it touches so much everyday stuff of life. 
you'll most likely spend an enormous percentage of your life in paid or unpaid work. How do you think about that, Christianly? How do you be a Christian working in God's world? And God has placed us, in case you hadn't noticed, in a very physical creation. We can't escape or ignore the environment in which God has placed us. The physical world around us of plants, animals, rocks, the sea, the atmosphere that we breathe. God has made all of this and he's placed us deliberately in it. How should we think about the environment? What does God want from us when it comes to our interaction with this environment that he's created around us? Those are some of the questions we're going to try and think about this afternoon. Now, if you're feeling tired, let's be honest, hand up, you're feeling a bit weary. Excellent. We have a tradition here at Ancon in the last talk that it is absolutely fine, in fact, it's encouraged that you just stand up during the last talk if you're feeling a bit weary. Now, if you just stood up and stayed where you are, that doesn't help everyone around you, right? So if you're feeling weary, what you do is you stand up, you just slide out and you just go and stand at the sides or stand at the back and just stand there for a while and listen, it will help you focus. And then after a while, if you want to sit down again, maybe just grab a chair somewhere near where you've been standing so you don't disrupt everyone again. But I always love it to see lots of people standing up. We got anyone standing up yet? Not yet. That's good. I've kept your attention so far. Oh, thank you very much. Excellent. So this is an important opportunity that we have together this afternoon. Don't let these issues pass you by. There's plenty of time for napping later on. So we start there on your outline by going back to creation and thinking about what it means to be called by God to exercise dominion as his image bearers. By now, you're hopefully very familiar. Maybe you could even memorize and recite these words. It's just so foundational for our understanding about humanity from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. As we saw way back on Monday night, twice in this passage we're told to rule over the other animals that God has created. We're called on by him to exercise dominion over the rest of his creation as his image bearers. And it's not just animal life. It's the wider non-animate life as well, as you can see from the second passage there on your page, Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That's the key phrase. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So as human beings, we're, we're to work in God's creation and take care of it. 
Now, if you read through Genesis 2, God had already planted in the Garden of Eden. He'd created the Garden of Eden, we're told, and he'd caused the plants to grow there with every good tree for food. But then, having already done that, he takes Adam and places Adam there to work the garden and take care of it. Adam's job is not to create the garden, it's to work in the garden that God has provided for him, work it and take care of it. If you like, he's to enhance the fruitfulness of what God has already made. He's to help it produce abundantly. So our exercise of dominion as God's image bearers extends over all creation, animal life, plant life, the non-living environment, the rocks, the soil, the water, the air. But notice this too, and this is critical, there are boundaries on how we exercise this dominion. We do this as God's representative image bearers. We're not free to just do whatever we want. So we're not actually free to just exploit creation for our own purposes because God doesn't give us the license to play God ourselves with his creation. We're representing him, the one true living God in his world, which we're to exercise dominion his way according to his plans and purposes and in line with his character. You can see that same idea reflected in the Genesis 2 passage. Adam and Eve can't just eat whatever they want, even if it looks good to them. God says you can eat from all the trees except for this one, because if you eat of that one, you'll die. God sets up a boundary for their good. They can exercise dominion within the boundaries that he set for them. Now, that's a really important point to grasp, because I take it from that, that we are not free to just do whatever we like with God's world. Just because we can do something doesn't mean that we're free to do it. Even though God's given us the, cap- the capability to do all sorts of things, we don't have a license from God to exploit creation for our own purposes. We don't have unfettered freedom to do whatever we want. No, we're His representative image bearers, so we exercise the dominion He's given us according to His plans and purposes and in line with His character. So what then is our task in the world to pull those points together? It's to exercise dominion over the rest of the creation, animals, plants and the non-living environment in order to care for it and enhance its fruitfulness. But our limitations are twofold. First, we exercise dominion as his representative image bearers. So we do it in line with his plans and purposes, reflecting his boundaries and in a way that reflects his character. But second... And this is worth thinking about for a moment. There's just an acknowledgement that actually God's creation is way more complicated than we often understand. The complex interactions between different species, plant and animal life, environmental factors of temperature, soil conditions, atmosphere, it is incredibly difficult to be on top of how all these factors definitively impact on one another. In fact, we can't do it. With all of our 
great learning, we still can't predict the weather. We do not, it's just too complex a system. We have a good stab, a good guess, but the whole system is too complicated for us, let alone then the interaction between different animal species, and if I use this chemical in this place, what will that do to that? It's just, God has created this incredibly complex ecosystem in which we are part. We're not apart from that ecosystem, we are in that ecosystem. We depend on that ecosystem for our food, for the air we breathe, for the water we drink, and we have an impact on that ecosystem. That's how God set it up. That's just how it is. But the fact that we don't fully understand about how everything connects together and the impacts that everything has means that I think we need to move cautiously in His world. We exercise dominion humbly because we're parking, working as part of this huge ecosystem set up by God of which we're just a part and we don't have anything like a full understanding of how all the parts impact on each other. Now that doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing because He's called us to have dominion, to work the garden and take care of it. But it just means we, we move forward with humility, knowing that we don't know everything. and We need to be careful. Well, the next page, page 55. What effect does sin have on our engagement with the rest of creation? You can see there what God says to Adam after he and Eve ignored God's boundary. They rejected his word, his wisdom and his way, and they ate from the tree they shouldn't have. Genesis 2, 17 to 19. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I had commanded you, you must not eat of it, that is, you listened to your wife and didn't listen to me, because of that, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow... You will eat your food until you return to the ground. So because of sin, work is now painful toil, the phrase used there. It's hard work. It's sweat-inducing. We're now battling with thorns and thistles. Adam and Eve, remember, were already working in the garden. They were already taking care of it before this happened. So work itself is a good thing, right? Work, Work itself is not a product of sin. Work is good, created by God. But now, because of sin, work in God's world will be frustrated. There will be resistance, thorns and thistles that choke out other plants with which we have to then do battle to produce food and crops. That frustration we experience in work is actually a reminder of sin. So when you're working in your work, and you experience a particular frustration, things don't work as you think they ought to work, they don't seem to work straightforwardly, things go wrong, it's actually a reminder of sin. I'm not saying it's a direct product of your sin or someone else's sin, I'm just saying the fact that work is frustrated like that is a reminder from God to you that yes, we rejected God, we rejected His Word, His wisdom and His way, and as a result, God has cursed the ground because of us, as a reminder to us of our sin. 
And as a reminder that actually he's called us, especially in Christ, to be a faithful image bearer and keep him as our God, even as we continue to work in his world, care for his creation amidst the frustration of thorns and thistles. Okay, so then how are we meant to live as God's people, particularly in the world? How are we meant to live as Jesus' disciples in this issue of work when work has been frustrated by sin? Well, we start to get a little bit of an idea, actually, when we look at the Old Testament. When we look at the nation of Israel, we discover that they were meant to be a community of care under God. So the key here, I think, is to notice that the law given to Old Testament Israel prescribed for her, as part of her holiness to God, to be a community of care. And notice what the law required her to do. Well, the first thing is that the goal of work is rest. Rest in God's presence, protection and provision. You might remember from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Lord God creates everything in seven days. Well, actually, it's not seven days. He creates everything in six days. And on the seventh day, according to Genesis 2, the Lord rested. What does it mean for God to rest? Is that like what you're going to do when you crash on the couch at home after Ancon? That's not actually rest, is it, when you crash on the couch after ankle? That's not rest, that's exhaustion. That's what that is. But God doesn't have to have a little lie down because he's tired. He's God. The idea of God resting is that he can stop working now because the goal of his work has been reached. He can stop and enjoy the fruit of his labour. The goal of all of God's work is this completed situation which we can describe as rest. Everything is now as God wanted it to be. And think when you read through Genesis chapter 1 and you get to that bit where God now rests, what's happening to everything he's created? Are they just resting? Are they just sitting around going, yay? No. The birds are flying, the fish are swimming, the animals are eating and the plants are growing and the humans are there breeding and whatever's going on, right? That's, everything is happening, and, but God is resting. Now everything is as I want it to be, untroubled by sin. Rest is about everything being as God wants it to be which is life in His presence, with all of His protection and all of His abundant provision. That's what rest, God's idea of rest, is. And God made sure that national Israel didn't forget that this was His plan by commanding them to keep every seventh day as a day of rest. It was a concrete way in their weekly experience of remembering that God's final goal for all of us and his whole creation is that we might enjoy his rest, life in his presence, with his protection and his provision. It's there on your page from Exodus 20. It's the fourth command in the Ten Commandments. The Lord said to Israel, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, 
but the seventh day is a day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, one aside and two important truths from this, right? Here's the aside. This was a law that God gave his Old Testament people. It's no longer a law for us, his new covenant people in Christ. Uh, if you want to chase that up, Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, Romans 14, 5 and 6, makes this very clear that Christians no longer have to keep the Sabbath day or indeed any Sabbath day. It's not a law required by God of us anymore. But the reason why God did make this a law for Old Testament Israel is very helpful to realize. It tells us two important truths about our work in the world. First, it was a reminder to them, a concrete reminder, that work has a goal. The ultimate goal of work is rest. Now, we hear that and think, kicking back, having a bit of a break. You work so you can go on your expensive overseas holiday, right? That's why you work during the holidays, isn't it? So you can have nice, expensive travel plans. Anyway. When we think rest, we think holidays, kicking back, or even maybe if you take the big picture, you might think, oh, I work all my life so that I can enjoy a comfortable retirement. We work in order to rest. We tend to think those sort of ways, but that's not the rest, as I said before, that God has in mind. The goal of your work is not your own leisure-filled relaxation. The goal of God's rest from his work was all about life in God's presence with his protection and provision. The goal of our work is to enjoy that sort of rest. It's a God-focused rest. And our danger in life is that we get so focused on work and working more and more that we forget that the goal of work is that we and the world might enjoy life in God's rest where we're in relationship with Him, enjoying His protection and His abundant provision through, yes, our labour in the world. So the goal of work is that sort of rest. Second truth to remember is the sort of rest that God ultimately wants to bring about will never be thoroughly achieved by us, no matter how hard we work. The sort of rest God ultimately wants to bring about will only be realized when Jesus comes back and makes all things new in the new creation. Life in God's presence with his protection and provision will ultimately only be our experience in glory. We're just not able and will never be able to create that new creation ourselves here in this age, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work. Because life and the creation itself in this age is always corrupted by sin. So we look forward to God bringing us all through Christ into his final rest, eternal life, in his presence with his protection and provision. And we don't, therefore we don't overplay 
what we can accomplish now through our work. But that doesn't mean that we write off all our work now in the world as a waste of time. Old Testament national Israel was given many instructions by God to embody a care for his world through their work. They were to set an example for others of what it means to work and care for God's creation. An example for the rest of the world of how to care for his creation as his people who know the one true living God. So have a look there at just one representative passage on your page from Exodus 23, 9 to 12. It's only just a handful of verses, but you notice just as we read through these verses, all the different sorts of care that Israel was called on by God to show for different parts of his world. All the different sorts of care. You just see how many you can find. I'll read from verse 9. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest your crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it. And the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. You notice there that way national Israel was to live life in God's world included caring for the poor and the needy. They were to deliberately not harvest or plough during the seventh year so that the poor could come along and take whatever was growing. There were provisions made here for the foreigner and the stranger to make sure that they too were well cared for. Even the animals get cared for here. Not just the domestic animals, the ox and the donkey, you're to not push them to work every day, you're to let them rest too on the Sabbath. But also you were to leave the food in your field so that when the poor had come through and taken what they wanted, then the wild animals could eat it. Deliberate consideration is given here even to the wild animals as valuable within God's creation and part of our dominion over them is not killing them, part of our dominion over them is providing for their food, caring for them, even the wild animals. Not only that, it's the land itself. If you look up Leviticus 25, you'll see that the Lord explains that one of the reasons to not plough the land in the seventh year is so that the land can have a rest. So the land is not overworked, overfarmed. There seems to be something here about helping enhance the long-term fruitfulness of God's creation by not overfarming it. In fact, if you then go ahead into Leviticus chapter 26, verses 34 to 35, the Lord says that if you don't follow all these commands and observe my Sabbath provisions, then I'm going to kick you out of the land 
and then the land will, will enjoy all the Sabbath years of rest that you failed to give it. Yet despite all of these instructions about how to care for God's creation, national Israel was enslaved by sin, like all of us outside of Christ. And so national Israel failed repeatedly. Which brings us then over the page to page 56 and the Lord Jesus. When we get to Jesus, there's a noticeable change in focus. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. It's very clear here from the Lord Jesus that the kingdom he is building, the kingdom he is announcing, the kingdom of God, is not a this-worldly kingdom. It's not like national Israel, which was a particular political entity in a particular geographical place with particular boundaries. He says, no, my kingdom is not of this world. He's establishing the kingdom of God, which won't be defined by earthly geographical boundaries or earthly politics. It's a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom of the age to come. Membership of this kingdom won't be defined by where you live or what passport you carry. It's going to be defined by whether you have faith in him, Jesus, the king of this kingdom. And that fits then with the very centre of his message there in Mark chapter 1. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. The centre of Jesus' message was not about work, was not about the environment. It's not about politics. The centre of Jesus' message is not about social good or refugee policy. The centre of Jesus' message was about your relationship with the one true living God. It was about the coming kingdom of God and making sure you are part of that coming kingdom. Hence his call, his central call, repent, turn back to God, get rid of all your false gods, believe the gospel, that message about him, who he is and what he's done. That's reflective of what we've been looking at this week, that the most important relationship any of us have is with God himself. Get yourself right with God, repent and believe the gospel. But as we've seen all week, once you have that relationship right, it has implications for every other part of your life, including how we treat one another, how we treat our family, including how we treat the rest of God's world. But we do need to get the centre focus right. And then we make sure that that central truth about our identity in Christ flows out into every other aspect of our life. Our family, our relationships, our work, our treatment of the environment. Because God's plan in Jesus, it is not restricted to just spiritual truths. God's plan in Jesus encompasses all of creation. 
You can see this there on your page, the universal impact Jesus has. In these two passages there, first from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. This is just one of those passages that, it's massive. It's, it's just massive in what it says. So just try to focus your tired adult brain for a moment and get this, get, get this from God in your head. Paul writes, the sun, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, the sun, in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." All things, all things, all things. It just, he just keeps saying it. All things, things on heaven and in earth and under the earth. All things made by Him, Jesus the Son, made by the Son, through the Son and for the Son. And then reconciled through the Son by God the Father. So those little, that mouse, that mouse that lives in the corner of your kitchen and you're having that sort of standing war with over the last three months, that mouse has been created for Jesus. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Created all all things, I guess that includes the mouse, all things created through him, by him, for him, and reconciled by him. The mouse. You. This world. The entire cosmos. Created by him, through him, for him, and beautifully, wonderfully, astoundingly reconciled through him to God the Father. Everything is for Jesus. Everything. How can we just write off parts of that everything as not important anymore? It's all for Jesus. It's all been made by him. It's all been reconciled through him. What's that going to mean? What does that mean for the creation? Well, the second passage there, Romans 8, 19 to 25. 
For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Key verse for the point I want to make is verse 21. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Quite a profound thought, what Paul's sharing here, that the creation itself, all of creation, its destiny is completely tied up with you, with us, the children of God. What I mean is this, it was our sin that brought the creation into its bondage to decay and frustration, wasn't it? Because of our sin, God cursed the ground. So creation was sort of tied to us in our rejection of God. Because of our sin, creation subjected to frustration and futility. But also, creation's redemption is tied to us. Our redemption will be accompanied by creation's liberation from its bondage to decay. Creation is groaning, says Paul, longing to share in the liberation that will come when God's children are revealed in glory. Creation, it seems like. God has bound creation to the state of his image bearers. As we go into sin, creation is subjected to decay. As God gloriously remakes us in Christ and brings us into glory, so creation is liberated from that bondage. What will that mean then for creation to be liberated from the thorns and thistles, from this bondage to decay? What will it be like to be part of a physical creation unaffected by sin? Well, I think the only window we have onto this is where God has already done it. There's already one part of this creation where God has already shown us what that might be like. And it was the resurrection of Jesus. Because what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead? His sinful flesh, I don't mean he was committing sin. What I mean is the flesh that he took on as God the Son in the incarnation is the same sort of corrupted by sin flesh that you and I have. A perishable flesh, a dustly mortal flesh. But his sinful flesh was transformed into imperishable flesh immortal glory, still physical, still real, but liberated, transformed. So that's what it looks like for a human 
a human body to be liberated from decay. God's going to do that with everything. Liberate everything from decay. Now, what will that be like? Well, be, what, will, what will physics be like when it's liberated from decay and you're sort of looking at stuff? Or chemistry, when you're looking at stuff, will the chemicals interact differently? I don't know, I don't know. It'll be fun to find out, won't it? That's the big picture. God has a plan to redeem creation, but the redemption does not happen through our current work, does it? It happens through and in Christ when He returns and makes all things new. So what then do we do now? What do we do now as Jesus' followers? Well, next page, page 57, the expectation for Jesus' followers. Three points. First of all, Jesus expects his followers to live as lights. Jesus says there, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We saw last night that God calls us to be a testifying community, to speak about who He is and what He's done gloriously in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, it's about how we live as well. Verse 16 there, that they may see, the world may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're called to live differently in the world. We're called to live as Jesus' disciples, as lights, showing the world how to live in right relationship with God with respect to everything else. Because we're God's image bearers in the world, His representative image bearers. So we, as his people, are to reflect his care and concern for his world. So we're to live as lights, first of all. Secondly, work is expected. You can see there, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Ooh, there's a harsh word for many a uni student. The one who is unwilling to work, come on, that's why God gives you parents. They can work and pay for my internet bill. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. The coming kingdom of God does not mean now we just sit back and do nothing. Oh, well, God's coming back. He's going to make it all new. So just put your feet up and wait for that. Then it's going to be awesome. We're still to work, even in light of the coming kingdom. Work is good, right? Go right right back to creation. Work is good. We're called to do it. And it's the means God has given us of sustaining life, not just our own life, but those of our family and indeed of others who are in need, indeed of 
the animals and creatures and the rest of creation. Work is the means that he's given us of helping sustain and enhance the fruitfulness of life in the world. But thirdly, we're to give ourselves as Jesus' disciples to the work of the Lord. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 58. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. What's the work of the Lord? Well, actually, if you look into uh, the next chapter, it's pretty clear because he uses the same phrase again. Work of the Lord, I think, seems to refer to doing, doing Christian ministry, sharing God's word with people. And he says here, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Now, the context in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's talking about our resurrection hope in Jesus. And he says, in light of that sure hope, in the light of the fact that Jesus is going to return and we will be raised with him in glory, he says, in light of that sure hope, don't fall into the trap of thinking that Christian ministry is ever a waste of time. In the Lord and because of what he's promised, your Christian ministry is never in vain. Because the Lord will raise all of those who are in Christ into eternity. So don't ever think, no matter how under pressure you are or how opposed you are, how persecuted you are, don't ever think that Christian ministry is maybe not worth it. No. In the Lord, your work in the Lord is never in vain. Because Christ is coming back. And he will raise all of those who have faith in him. But I want to ask you a question. Given what he says there, could we then imply, from what Paul says, could we imply that, okay, so work in the Lord is not in vain. Maybe everything else is in vain. Is that the only thing that's not in vain? Well, that's not actually what he says. I think he's encouraging the Corinthian Christians, particularly under pressure for their faith, to stand firm and not pull back from Christ and only be half-hearted in Christian commitment to love each other and, and to ministry. He's saying, don't be tentative, don't pull back. In fact, give yourself fully to the Lord's work because your labour in the Lord is not in vain. I don't think he's making the point here that everything else is not worth doing. It's a particular encouragement to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Don't pull back from that. You might like to pick that up with me later. But we need to finish this trajectory. What about the glorious new creation? What can we say about that? The final passage there, 2 Peter 3, 10 to 15. Listen to what the Apostle Peter writes for our encouragement. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, 
we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. So what's Peter saying here about this present universe in which we live? He uses very exalted, apocalyptic-type language here. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare, exposed. What will it be like to experience that? I don't know. It's exalted, apocalyptic imagery. But it's communicating a really important truth. What's that truth? Everything will be exposed. All the sin, all the corruption is going to be burnt up. And what will, what will God bring about out of that? A new heavens and a new earth, new creation where righteousness dwells. See, the point of the imagery seems to be that sin is done away with, and now it's righteousness that rules, that reigns, that characterizes. And therefore, in the light of that, how should we live now? Well, actually, it's, it's pretty straightforward. How we live now is we live now as those who belong to that new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 11, we live holy and godly lives as we look forward to that day. Verse 14, we make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Verse 15, we remember the fact that the day has not yet arrived means God is being patient and actually he is being patient so more people can repent and be saved and be part of that new heavens and new earth. So you see, here you get two things, don't you? Twin concerns of evangelism, seeing people saved so they can be part of that day, and living holy and godly lives now as God's people. And I want to suggest to you that part of living a holy and godly life now is not just dealing with sin in your life under the power of God's Spirit, it's also living with an appropriate love for God, love for neighbour, and a care and concern for His world in which He's placed us until that day arrives. So, pulling all of this together, page 58, over the page, some final conclusions. How do we live as God's people, truly engaged with this world in which He's placed us? Four things. Keep Jesus and his gospel at the centre. Remember, the gospel writers, when they describe to us Jesus' ministry, they, they, they show you his main message by putting it right at the beginning. 
The time has come, said Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Get your relationship, the one true living God who made you and loved you, get your relationship with him right. Repent and believe in the gospel. Entrust yourself to Jesus. And we need to keep Jesus, all that he has done for us in salvation, keep that at the very center of all that we do, of our life. And because we have that at the center, we then seek to live a holy life. Because we know we've been saved by grace through faith, we live a holy life as God calls us to as his people. So in the power of his spirit, we fight sin in ourselves. We seek to be a faithful image bearer in the world. We represent his ruling presence in all of our relationships in the way we treat and care for this world in which he's placed us. And we avoid distortions. We avoid sort of relegating Jesus and the gospel to second place. We avoid sort of either thinking that it's all about work now, it's all about doing good now, and somehow forgetting Jesus' central message that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So we avoid relegating Jesus and the gospel to second place, but also we avoid divorcing being a follower of Jesus from being a faithful image bearer in the world in which he's placed us. And if we end up devaluing the goodness or the rightness of work in God's world or pretending that how we treat God's world now just doesn't matter anymore, no, no. It's actually deeply connected to your identity in Jesus, that you're now one of his people. It's part of living a holy life, a life that's set apart because you belong to God. It's part of being lights in the world. Which then brings us to our final point, living as an outpost, of commu- uh, an outpost community of aliens and strangers. We're being called and remade in Christ... To be this outpost of the future. You are a time traveller. That is, God has remade you already in Christ, given you new birth, such that you are a person who belongs in the future kingdom of God. But by his grace and mercy, he's brought you back, placed you here amongst his people here, and we live as this eschatological outpost, an outpost from the future kingdom of God, living now in the power of his spirit, with the guidance of his word, in devotion to him in Christ. And that affects how we, tr- so that affects how we treat each other, the way we love people, love God, the way we treat his world. We seek to live as that community of outposts, uh, outpost community of aliens and strangers in this world because we belong to another kingdom. And we do that so that all of God's creatures might see the great future and plan that God has for them in Christ. That they might join us and be with us in that great kingdom of God to come. So with the guidance of his word and the empowerment of his spirit and the encouragement of one another, that's what we're going to keep on doing until we see Jesus face to face together in the glorious new creation. 
How does all of this then play out for our deep longings, our aspirations? Uh, That's over the page on Talk 7, but the good news is that's next week. So I hope to see you at public meetings next week where we finish off this look at what it means to be a human being by trying to bring all of this ANCON worth of talks into 35 minutes to talk about how does this play out for our deep longings and aspirations as human beings? It'd be great to have you come along. See you there next week. EU public meetings, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 1 p.m. Now, let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for your incredible love for us in the Lord Jesus, that you have remade us in His image by your Spirit, that we might be your faithful image bearers in this world in which you've placed us. Thank you for calling us as your people to be lights in your world. We pray, Father, you would give us true wisdom and true strength from your Spirit to love all that you have made and to give ourselves in working and caring for your creation and all your creatures whilst we proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus that through our words, your great gospel would see many people come to saving faith that they might rejoice with us for all eternity in your glorious new creation. Thank you for this, these amazing, life-shaping and changing truths that you've revealed in your gospel. We pray, Father, please, you would help us to walk worthy of them and worthy of you, our loving Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. Ancon, how are you all? Yeah? Not too tired? Who, who's tired? Hands up. You're tired. I'm tired. Yeah, thanks. Um, we're going to make pancakes this morning or this afternoon. Why, why make pancakes, I hear you ask? Well, because before um, any kind of big job or big day, it's really good to have like a big breakfast. So that's what we've got here. We've got pancakes. I've got my stove uh, and 